0: Well, I alluded to this when we began the service. Um, I'll say it a little bit more explicitly. It is Reformation Sunday. Uh, We talked about that uh, last week. What that means is it is the Sunday on or prior to October 31st, which is Reformation Day. It's the uh, anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses upon the Wittenberg door, October 31st, 1517. And so many churches through the ages around the world mark that day in some way, shape, or form. I, I thought about wearing a Luther wig uh, and, and costume today, but thought better of it. Perhaps something a little, be a little bit more helpful, um, as we've done in years past, looking at um, uh, the life and lessons of a figure from church history, but not just to satisfy our curiosity's sake, not just because maybe if you got an itch to scratch regarding history or anything like that. But much, much more so, much more importantly, that to, that, that person, their life, their ministry would be a lens through which we actually see our Savior uh, and, and to see him better, uh, and and that's really what the the goal is in this. I'll just tell you from the outset, I'm relying on notes a bit more than normal. So if you see me not really, you know. My eyes are here just because there's a lot of detail, and so it's just a little little bit more unusual uh, as far as uh, this morning's message is concerned. So let me me, uh, settle a question though from from the outset, and I've kind of touched on it, but I just want to be a little bit more explicit. In the context of a corporate worship service like, like this, is it right to take time to examine the life of a mortal human being? Well, I'll answer this in two ways. Praise can be found, you know. Praise can be found in any of God's image bearers simply in that we all reflect something of our Creator. Point one. Point two. How much more so in the lives of His people? Uh, John Piper said it this way in his book, The Legacy of Sovereign Joy. God ordains that we gaze on His glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of His flawed servants. He intends for us to consider their lives and peer through their imperfections, the imperfections of their faith, and behold the beauty of their God. The point being that there is much to be gained in such a study, if it's done in the right spirit, and if we will have but the humility to, to listen. Um, that begs a question, though, why Charles Spurgeon? Why Charles Spurgeon? Uh, well, I would say because of what he was about, and by that I mean these two things. He was uh, about a commitment to truth, the truth, his commitment to the Scriptures, and his commitment to the gospel of grace. Secondly, I would say, why Charles Spurgeon? Because he was a man like us who lived in this world and who knew well what it is to suffer. And his life gives us a lens through which we can learn to suffer better. And we need that. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're trying to find that, I will give you a quick uh, primer on on the lay of the land there in the New Testament. So first, it is the New Testament. It's after the Gospels, and after Acts, and after Romans, and after the Corinthian letters, and after Galatians, and after Ephesians, you have Philippians. Philippians Philippians chapter 2. This is in in the midst of a a larger uh, argument that Paul is making that I'll explain here in just a minute. Uh, But Philippians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11. Just those those verses there I want to to look at here. And being found, and he's referring to Jesus here. uh, Excuse me, that's verse 8. Therefore, verse 9, Therefore God has exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we we need to learn what it is uh, to suffer under the sovereignty of God. Um, To know what it is to truly yield in submission to and trust in the power of the king who whose uh, arm his his reach is not limited is his sight is is hardly too near um, the power of the king the wisdom of the king who can see and who knows and who Plans and who orders and whose timing is never, never an inch less than perfect. And whose love and whose mercy and whose compassion and commitment and zeal for the good of his children cannot be measured. And the best that we could ever find in this world is but a glimmer of a flicker of a shadow of a glimpse of His. Oh, that we would know what it means to suffer under the sovereignty of such a God. And we ask that you would take our brief bit of time and the lens through which we have to learn something in and through uh, the, the life and ministry of our brother Charles Spurgeon. Take this time and use it, we pray, in our own lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a brief, brief explanation of this text that I just read from a moment ago from Philippians 2 and how it relates to uh, Spurgeon and what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. So, so in Philippians 2, Paul is urging his readers towards unity and faith and service. In verses 5 through 11, verses 5 through 11, the overall con- larger context of what I was reading, uh, he sets before them Christ's example of Humility and in a poetic form, he lays out the stages of Christ's ministry, his preexistence, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection and his ascension. And the idea being, as Paul is tracing this out, that Jesus was brought as low as he possibly could have been. And that said, though, in verses 9 through 11, what we just did actually read, Jesus was raised, raised and exalted. Spurgeon preached a sermon on, on this. Well, no few, but one in particular that I have in mind. I'm going to come back to this later. I'm going to read you a, just a quick excerpt from that particular sermon. Listen to what he said. Look at him. Can your imagination picture him? Behold, his transcendent glory. The majesty of kings is swallowed up. The pomp of empires dissolves like the white mist of the morning before the sun. The brightness of assembled armies is eclipsed. He in himself is brighter than the sun, more terrible than armies with banners. See him! See him! You get a glimpse, just right there, of Spurgeon's passion in preaching and his passion for Jesus, the risen, ruling, reigning, exalted King, Christ Jesus. And it was this sweet assurance and this deep um, Conviction that anchored Spurgeon in the storms of life. Both those things being equally true. The storms and the anchor. The storm but At the same time, equally true. The storms and the anchor that Spurgeon held to and held him. Christ is exalted. And He is Lord in and over every storm that we will ever, ever, ever face. Including even now. And going even further. Indeed, Christ in His sovereign love for us brings us such storms for our good. The implication of that is we need to learn how to live in that. Christ in His sovereign love for us brings us such storms for our good. The implication of that is we need to learn to live in that, and I would go so far for our purposes this morning, we need to learn from others who have gone before us and what they have to teach us, which is where our study comes into play. So let me give you, you can see this in your outline there, in your bulletin, first a, a brief biographical sketch. In the last hour, we took about an hour to do that. I'm going to take about ten minutes, at, if, if that. Five to ten minutes give you a brief biographical sketch. Just hitting some highlights here. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born June 19, 1834, in a little cottage in Essex. He was the first of 17 children, nine of whom died in infancy. Both his father and his grandfather were pastors. Eighteen months later, so he's you know 18 months old, when his mother was about to deliver her second child, little Charles was sent to live with his grandparents. He ended up staying with them until he was six years old. During this time, a bond, an intense bond, grew between the little boy and his grandfather, the result of which being, among many things, a, a ready access to the grandfather, the pastor's library. Young Charles learned to read. Intensely so in those days, especially Pilgrim's Progress. And by the age of 10, he was reading some pretty heavy stuff from the Puritans. As he moved into his teens, he began writing poetry and publishing, editing a magazine. Shortly before he was 15 years old, in in the midst of a a contest, he didn't actually win the contest, but he wrote a 295-page book entitled, get this, Antichrist and Her Brood, Popery Unmasked. Fifteen. Actually, not quite fifteen. It was obvious to everyone who knew this kid that he was wise beyond his years and exceptionally mature. But he was not yet a Christian. When he was ten years old, he speaks of, uh, in, in hindsight, in his autobiography, he speaks of being deeply convicted of sin, but with no saving knowledge, the way he put it, no saving knowledge of Christ. He was aware of his need, but unable to be settled. In any real way. Well, this lasted for five agonizing years. Uh, That that conundrum within this young boy's heart until Sunday, January sixth, eighteen fifty, when a snowstorm drove him to seek shelter in a Methodist chapel, and there he sat under the hesitant instruction instruction of a reluctant substitute preacher. The text we read this last hour. The text was Isaiah chapter forty-five, verse twenty-two. Now you don't have to turn there because it's going to take you longer to turn there than it will be for me to read it. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. After stumbling through the exposition, the man spotted the young visitor there in the crowd. It was a small group. Spurgeon stands out. He says, that young man there looks very miserable. Look. Look, young man. Look now. And surprisingly, and perhaps even strangely, those words pierced Spurgeon's heart. And he did look to Christ. His burden was lifted. The change was obvious on his arrival back home. His mother could see something even in his appearance and said to him, something wonderful has happened to you, and indeed it had. Uh, His first experience in preaching was in a house meeting in 1851, the next year. His gifts are clear. He is later, soon thereafter, asked to fill a pulpit. He agrees to do so just for a short stint. He ends up doing this for two years. Uh, Water Beach Chapel near Cambridge. December 1853, he's asked to candidate at New Park Street Baptist Church, the largest and best-known Baptist church in all of London. Five years. I said this last hour. Five years and one day after his conversion... Spurgeon now finds himself preaching to the congregation that he will now stay with and minister to for the next 38 years. For the rest of his life, really. Weekly attendance grew, didn't take long, to 10,000. He once spoke to a crowd of nearly 24,000 without any amplification whatsoever. New Park Street quickly outgrew their facility. 1861 Metropolitan Chapel is built in the heart of of South London. In time, membership grew to 5,300. The ministry was expansive. It wasn't just a Sunday morning thing. Let me just give you some summaries and some anecdotes to illustrate something of this. While at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon begins a pastor's college that trained nearly 900 students in his lifetime alone. It still exists. He also opened almshouses for needy widows and an orphanage for the children of the street. And this was all done as fruit of and testimony to the gospel. A few other things worth noting. By accepting so many invitations to speak over his years, Spurgeon often preached ten times a week. During his lifetime, he is estimated to have preached to ten million people. In 1865, Spurgeon's sermon sold 25,000 copies a week And we're translated into more than 20 languages. He is right now, this is 2015, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is the most widely read preacher, apart from biblical ones. He is the, today, the most widely read preacher and there is more material written by Spurgeon than any other Christian author living or dead. So He's worth learning a little bit about. Some anecdotes that might help flesh all this out. One woman was converted to Christ through reading a single page of one of his sermons that she had wrapped around some butter. (laughs) Testing the acoustics in a particular hall that he was speaking in, Spurgeon shouted, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Well, there was a worker high in the rafters of that building. He heard that and became converted to Christ as a result. Spurgeon often worked 18 hours a day. Famous explorer and missionary David Livingstone once asked him, "How do you imagine? How do you manage to do two men's work in a single day?" Spurgeon replied, "You forget that there are two of us." Occasionally, Spurgeon asked, "Get this." Spurgeon asked the members of his congregation not to attend the next Sunday service so that newcomers might find a seat. During one 1879 service in which he did this, the regular congregation left so that the newcomers waiting outside could come in. And the place filled and was overfilled. Charles Spurgeon died January 31, 1892. He was but 57 years old. We talked about this last hour. Uh, 60,000 people came to pay homage to Spurgeon. During the three days his body lay in state at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, a funeral parade two miles long followed his hearse from the tabernacle to the cemetery. 100,000 people stood along the way, flags flying at half-mast, shops, pubs closed. It was a remarkable demonstration of affection and respect, even in an era when people were rather scrupulous, even more so, much more so than today, in observing the rituals surrounding death and that time. But that is hardly to say that everything was easy for this gifted, beloved man. Which brings me back to the main thrust of this message. Christ in His sovereign love brings us storms for our good. And we need to learn how to live in that and how to learn from others who have gone before us. So let me take a few minutes to give you now an overview of the sufferings that Spurgeon endured over his years. And you have a a sketch of that in your outline. Not surprisingly, such a ministry did bring with it the everyday burdens of the pastorate. There were the ordinary frustrations with lukewarm members, the common disappointments brought by hard-hearted folks with their petty criticisms, ill-timed input, and selfish suggestions. But beyond that, there was also relational pain, the betrayal of trusted friends and confidants, the shocking falls into temptation by leaders, and disheartening strife and division and slander. But Spurgeon, that's the normal thing in the pastorate once you're there long enough. Spurgeon endured far worse than that, far more than that, including that of what has been called extraordinary calamity. October 19, 1856, he preached for the first time in the music hall of the Royal Surrey Gardens because New Park Street, that church he was serving in at the time, could not hold all the people, the 10,000 Seating capacity was not nearly enough. There was more than that, were more than that, outside as people were pressing in. Someone inside, however, just as he was beginning to get, just starting the service really, shouted fire. And there was a great panic. And seven people were killed in the stampede. And a few dozen more were grievously injured and hospitalized. Spurgeon was 22 years old and was overcome by this calamity. He said later, Perhaps never my soul went so near the burning furnace of insanity, and yet came away unharmed, but not all who knew him would say he was unharmed. One close friend and biographer put it this way, I cannot but think from what I saw that his comparatively early death might be in some measure due to the furnace of mental suffering he endured on and after that fearful night. Beyond this, there was suffering closer to home family pain. He knew that all too well. January 1856, a few months just before that music hall tragedy, he married Susanna Thompson. Now she, by the way, we talked about this a little bit more at length in, in the last hour, she was not in, initially impressed with this guy, but he was a persistent suitor. Uh, they did marry and went to Paris for their honeymoon. She gave birth to twin sons later that year, actually the day after the fire. Well, The accident, there was no fire. We're not sure of the cause, but Susanna was unable to have any more children. And by 1865, when she was but 33 years old, she became a virtual invalid and was seldom ever after able to hear her husband preach. And through it all, their marriage was a source of, of great comfort and strength to them both. But this was hard. Hard. As were Spurgeon's own physical ailments, the pain of which was often excruciating. He suffered from gout, rheumatism, and Bright's disease, and inflammation of the kidneys. The first attack of gout came when he was 35 years old, and seldom ever after was he free from pain or a desperate need for rest. Um, one biographer put it this way, the impact upon his ministry as a consequence of, of this. Approximately one-third of the last 22 years of his ministry was spent out of the tabernacle pulpit, either suffering, convalescing, or taking precautions against the return of the illness. Now added to all of that was the public ridicule and vicious slander that he had to endure, and it came from all sides. Uh, pastors on both the left and the right and the press. Uh, one paper said this of Spurgeon, his style is that of a vulgar colloquial varied by rant. All the most solemn mysteries of our holy religion are by him rudely roughly and impiously handled. Common sense is outraged and decency disgusted. His rantings are interspersed with coarse anecdotes. Now, this, the worst came to or uh, well, the worst came about in the twilight of his ministry during what was called the downgrade controversy, and this was a battle for the doctrinal integrity of the Baptist Union, in the course of which Spurgeon withdrew from the Union, and because of that, the Union publicly censured him. It was a mess. It was embarrassing. It was heartbreaking. But I've left the worst till last. Spurgeon's long battle with debilitating depression. Now, as is oftentimes the case, the causes were likely multifaceted. For starters, the man was clearly overworked and at times overwhelmed. And as I've already tried to lay out here, briefly, his burdens were many, the worst of which was the Surrey Garden tragedy, which seemed to stay with him and just haunt him. In 1858, at age 24, the first of these debilitating episodes came upon him. He said, "...my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Years later, in lectures at the pastor's college, he told his students, "...causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discouragings, As well fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our our spirits in gloomy prison needs a heavenly hand to push it back. Let it be said that this gifted man did not lead a charmed life. Not in any way. Which brings us again to the main thrust of the message. Christ in His sovereign love brings us storms for our good. And we need to learn what it is to live in that and how to learn from others who have gone before. So now having given you an overview of the sufferings from in which he had to deal with, let us now reflect for a few minutes on lessons we can learn uh, from those sufferings. And I would say Spurgeon can serve something as something of a guide. But let me note this at the start. as we're moving through... These points. As I go through this list, each one of these points is going to become less and less intuitive to you. More and more foreign to your heart. And I would therein say more and more necessary for us to consider. At a practical level, let's start with this. At a practical level, Spurgeon points just to the need for rest time and time in nature. Uh, are on the need for rest and time to gather our strength, he told his students, it is wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run we shall do more by sometimes doing less. On, on, on forever without recreation may suit spirits emancipated from this heavy clay. But while we are in this tabernacle, we must every now and then cry halt and serve the Lord by holy inaction and consecrated leisure. Let no tender conscience doubt the lawfulness of going out of harness for a while. Good counsel, as is his advice to get out at times and to enjoy God's creation. Another quote to his uh, words to his students. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is next best. Again, sound advice that Spurgeon knew was all too needed in his own experience. As is, and this is the second thing, a a proper perspective on the causes of our struggles. That is to say the fundamental essential way that we see them and understand them. Now in one of his lectures to his students, Spurgeon lists out the possible roots of our sorrows. And I won't go into listing that, but I just want to say this. It's it's helpful to think about that, you know what might be the, the practical sort of you know cause and effect things that's driving this, but I couldn't help but notice how he starts the list, and this is the quote from that lecture the reasons why these things are permitted. And note how he says that not why they happen or come about, but are permitted. Spurgeon right there is, is implying God's hand behind this. All of our suffering. That's a crucial distinction. Which then, let me, I'll come back to that, but let me press on here. The proper perspective, not just on the, the causes, but on the times as, as well. Um, Paul, The Apostle Paul wrote of the assurance that our momentary afflictions... Uh, The the assurance that these momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory. uh, that You might say counterbalances in any and everything that we might endure even in this life. Paul then looked for the things that are eternal. So did Spurgeon. uh, Applied to the, the, uh, the context of the public ridicule that he was experiencing. So often, he said during the downgrade controversy, these words, posterity must be considered. I do not look so much at what is to happen today for these things relate to eternity. For my part, I'm quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years. But the more distant future shall vindicate me. I have dealt honestly before the living God. My brother do the same. But there's more than just having a perspective, as important as that is, in terms of causes and the times in which we are enduring the suffering. There's also, and this is your fourth point, letter D, crucial And underlying all of that is a commitment to Christ. Communion with Christ. Spurgeon spoke to his students of how vital it is for us to be nourished and continually so. Never neglect your spiritual meals. Or you will lack stamina and your spirits will sink. Live on the substantial doctrines of grace. And you will outlive and outwork those who delight in the pastry and syllabubs of modern thought. Innerly yoked to that nourishment in the Word is time in prayer. Prayer with the Lord. And he wrote of this in 1871. And this speaks oh so powerfully uh, to his suffering and his love of his Savior. And, well, Let me just read it. I'll let it speak for itself. When I was racked some months ago with pain to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out, I asked all to go out from the room. And leave me alone. And then I had nothing I could say to God but this. Thou art my Father, and I am thy child. And thou as a Father art tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him. And put my arms under him to sustain me. Saying to him, wilt thou hide thy face from me, my father? Wilt thou still lay on a heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? So I pleaded. And I ventured to say when I was quiet. And they came back who watched me. I shall never have such pain again from this moment. For God has heard my prayer. I bless God that ease came and that racking pain never returned. Well, at least for a time. Pushing further against the grain of what comes intuitively to us in our suffering and what we need to hear and what we need to lay hold of. Spurgeon was also sustained in his trials and suffering by his trust in God's care. Both his power and his love. His was a deep assurance of God's sovereignty over all of our afflictions. This is something he said. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity you hear what he's saying here it's not just that god knows what is coming but that he knows what is coming because he plans what's coming And that is grounds for peace, knowing that nothing happens accidentally. It all happens for His purpose and intent. And it is also fuel for prayer. Because if He is not a sovereign God, why bother praying to Him at all? What are you asking of Him if you don't think He's the sovereign King of the universe, even over your affliction? Why are you bothering to ask of Him anything? if he is not the Lord, is grounds for peace and fuel for prayer. Spurgeon was upheld by the hope of sweet sovereignty and purposeful pain. He wrote, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bin of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Now, that brings us to the last point. The one that I I know goes most directly against our inclinations and so most likely needs to be stressed the most And that is, in the midst of our afflictions, a heart and a mind set on devotion to God's glory, in and through it, above it all. On November 2nd, 1856, Spurgeon preached a sermon entitled, The Exaltation of Christ. His text, it was what I read from the very, very beginning, his text was Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 the passage we read also. This was just two weeks after that Surrey Garden tragedy, and it was his first time back in the pulpit. That's the message. That's the text. I've been reading that sermon several times over the last week or so. And I have to tell you, I found myself deeply moved by his heart, and not just by Spurgeon's heart, but by the Lord's gracious, sustaining work in Spurgeon's heart as well considering what he was enduring at the time. Now let me try and summarize this uh, long sermon, if I can, very quickly. When all else is giving way, our minds return to the place that they have been dwelling all along. We ask, when everything seems to be going crazy and haywire and this tumult and chaos, we ask, "Is, is that whatever that is, is that safe and secure? This thing that all along is our treasure, our hope. We want to know in the midst of the disaster and the calamity that's befallen us, is that safe? Is that secure? That's true for every human being. It's how we're, all of us are wired. Okay. So with that in mind, when disaster strikes, when, when tragedy comes upon us, grief threatens to unmake us, what then should the Christian mind and heart return to? Again, to that which should be occupying their minds and hearts all along. Christ. His glory. Our chief aim and desire. So we ask, is that safe in the midst of this? What's gone wrong? And the pain and the suffering. Is that safe? Is that secure? Yes. That will never give way. That will always stand firm and fast. And that's Spurgeon's basic point. And he goes on for pages from there to unpack that. And he says at the beginning of the sermon these words, This is what has comforted me and in a great measure enabled me to come here today. Now I will tell you, that will tweak your compass. It's an otherworldly perspective. We we used that phrasing last week in the Sermon on the Mount. It's anotherworldly perspective. And when we desperately need. All of us. Back to where we began. Christ in His sovereign love for us brings us storms for our good. We need to learn how to live in that. And we need to learn how to learn from others who've gone before us. We need, I can put it, I'll put it this way, we need wisdom from another time grounded in the eternal truths of the Scriptures. And we have this in Charles Spurgeon, especially on this topic of, of, of suffering, and I would say on this topic of suffering, we need it all the more. Whether you're in the midst of it now or when you will be in the future, which you, we will, all of us. Spurgeon's life and ministry is something of a gift to us. And I would say that just in closing in, in these two ways first. In how we can be encouraged to be honest and candid in our struggles. He models that for us. He shows us, and not, not being so quick to say, fine, when we're asked how we are. And we never mean it. But rather being willing to speak to the hurt and the confusion that we feel, even as we're holding on. And certainly Spurgeon did to his friends, to his students, uh, to his congregation. And we know that because of his letters, his lectures, his, his, his writings, and his sermons. The man was brutally honest about his struggles. That's the first thing, being honest about just what's going on. And the second, being honest about what it is to follow Christ. Hard at times. He was quite clear. I don't want to be misconstrued when I say this, but so take it in the context in which I do say this. Following Christ is the best and worst thing you will ever do. It's not... Well, the servant is not above his master, right? We talked about that last week towards the end of the Beatitudes. The servant is not above his master. This is not easy but hard. It's not about quick fixes but spiritual heart surgery, sometimes without the anesthesia. And we see that in history. We see it in biblical history with David and Elijah and Jonah. We see it centuries later with Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and countless others. Less famous saints. It is joy mixed with sorrow. It is pain mixed with the progress. We need that kind of honesty. Lest we be misinformed, and disillusioned. Christ, in His sovereign love, does bring us storms, but for our good. And we need to know, again, need, I've said this I don't know how many times already, we need to learn how to live in that and we need to learn how to learn from others who've gone before us in that. Let me end with these words. These last words from the last sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached. I believe it's there in your quotes and notes, as that last quote of the three? Yes. The last words of the last sermon that he ever preached. Hear the man's heart. Hear of the Savior. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, He always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on His shoulders. If He bids us carry a burden, He carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in Him. These thirty, excuse me, forty years and more have I served him. Blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another forty years in the same dear service here below, if so it pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus, even this day. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for these few minutes to reflect on Your work in the life of one of Your instruments, one of Your servants, one of Your beloved children, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. His was another place and another time and another calling than ours. But still, too, the same Gospel, the same hope, the same Savior, the same sustenance in trials and suffering. And We ask that You give us ears with which to hear the lessons that You taught Him that You would have us to learn through Him what it means to suffer under Your sovereignty, what it means to entrust and submit ourselves truly to a powerful King, a wise King, Merciful, loving, gracious, compassionate King. In whose name we pray, Amen.